Is the SNP still the main game in town for independent supporters or has Peter Murrell's uh, arrest damaged that? Is Anna Sarwar going to have an easy time of explaining why he supports a Westminster government against Humza Yousaf if the First Minister decides to challenge that thir Section 35 order on the Gender Recognition Act? After all, uh, Labour MSPs filed through the lobbies to support it as well. And uh, what can we expect from Joe Biden's trip uh, to Northern Ireland to commemorate 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement? He's meeting all the political leaders in Northern Ireland. Can he manage to persuade unionists to get back into the power-sharing executive in Stormont where others have failed? Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi chums and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast and uh, the story of the great clear out the Joyce household continues. I was up in the loft and found this fantastic brilliant tent I used to take to uh, festivals. It could sleep about half a dozen people, double bedrooms and a lounge. I put it up for sale on uh, eBay and I was half expecting given the events of the last week that Police Scotland would be in touch <laughs> and uh, make me an offer. Ooh, there we have a lead. You know, I'm, 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 if I was chocolate, I'd eat myself just now, Leslie, for that for that little link. That into... is quite cunning. Is it a sort of day glow blue colour or kind no, of? No, 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 no. It's it's actually it's actually kind of khaki. It merges into the background, which probably wouldn't fit with no. the profile. I presume Police Scotland with the uh, the numbers. Uh, that attended the, the event at the, the Surgeon Model household, um, it wouldn't quite get the publicity that Police Scotland were possibly after, he says speculatively. Yeah, you are. Boy, you are feeling brave this morning. Yeah. <laughs> I, mm. say, I spent a whole of like, last week just, well, I mean, when that when the arrest happened in the tents and the, you know, I mean, everything, um, you know, the phone again went ringing off the hook with folk from from London wanting to kind of you know get people on to talk about it and I had to really talk talk them through the idea that this actually mm. would be contempt of court and yes. that Scots take it sort of quite, quite seriously uh, and they were all for you know big long discussions about the whole thing uh, which you know were going to be lined up with Alex Massey and all sorts of people which when I, I said I'm, I'm just not doing that um, and then when I listened to those those uh, programmes, they actually had knuckled down themselves and just had reporter pieces. But obviously the speculation about the whole blooming thing and <laughs> you know everybody listening will have seen it. Um, and, you know, I mean, what can you say? It's it's not it's not great. Um, lots of people. I mean, we've been through this before when Douglas Chapman resigned because he didn't have access to the books about six years ago, five years ago, maybe. You know, that was a moment um, that just came and went. Um, I'm sure within the party, there was a lot more grinding teeth than that. And perhaps that was actually the genesis of much of the kind of um, anger and then the alternative candidates that have emerged during the leadership campaign. And, uh, you know, you're left in a situation where there's not much left to defend. I mean, you know, it, it, my grumbles with Peter Murrell sort of predated any of the difficulty with the 600,000 quid um, just from the sort of whole management of the SNP. So you'd like to think that whatever's happening with him, the, it's clear to Humza Yousaf and the, whoever will be the next chief executive who cannot be one of the old guard. I mean, you know, that that's, I think at the moment, Kirsten Oswald 
Mike Russell and, and, and perhaps Homza, there's one other name that I've forgotten, are actually looking at how to and who to appoint as new chief executive. But there's got to be now a fresh kind of pair of hands in, in doing that, surely. Uh, so anyway, it, it all goes on. You know, is Peter Murrell getting his legal fees paid by the SNP? No, he's not. I mean, in a way, there's nothing you can say about it, nothing you can do about it. And it's a reality that will now unfold, which my mind just be on, on old fashioned. But I just don't find myself getting sucked into putting much energy into things that are, will actually happen or not happen imminently. Um, the more important stuff is what's happening in the meantime. Um, and whether or not, you know, there's Angus McNeil is calling for, you know, a rerun. Mm. Um, but Michelle Thompson was on this morning on Absolutely. TMS. Uh, she was the campaign manager for Kate Forbes. And as as noted in my own Herald column, um, you know, she, like Kate Forbes, is is absolutely saying everyone needs to support Humza Yusuf. And if you look at Kate Forbes' tw- Twitter line, um, every day practically she's got a tweet out saying, great that Humza did this, great that Humza did that, great that he went to Aberdeen. Great that he's getting out from the central belt. Great that he's kind of done something immediately to, you know, deal with child poverty. So my question would just be, you know, who is everyone coalescing round if Kate does not want it to be herself? And people may start having long speculation about she's playing a waiting game. She's going to come back in later. Again, that hits into the, you know, let's see that one happen when it's actually finally emerged. Because, you know, during the campaign, she were going back over ancient history here, but she did say it was a once in a, you know, once in a lifetime. Uh, she was going to stand once and that was it. Um, and uh, at the moment, I can't see quite how the Gang of 15 or whoever it is do anything other than undermine the SNP dramatically. Uh, of course, it's a free world and you're you know, entitled to have groupings that can try to affect policy. But, you know, the far bigger thing at the moment is, do you want to see the SNP go down or not? Yes. Because that's where we are now. And everybody who's got, you know, qu- again, can quite entitled to decide that the game's a bogey, you've had enough and you're off to Alba but I, I, or, or the Greens or wherever. Uh, but, I mean, I, I was very struck by Michelle this morning when she was yeah. asked, um, you know, about the current position and, and particularly Mike Russell's suggestion over the weekend uh, in an interview with the Herald that, um, you know, independence is not going to be happening now. Well, I mean, in a way, that's a statement of the pretty obvious, but it's one that no part of the leadership has ever had the confidence to say, basically. Um, and Michelle was was saying, well, you know, I've spent 41 years, I think it was, in the SNP, at most of which time independence was not going to be happening imminently. So the question is whether everyone in the in the wider movement can handle the idea of an adjusted time frame about everything. And and in the column that, that I was writing in the Herald, I sort of, you know, probably took my life in my hands by suggesting that if if it, if it is 100 percent sincere, um, you know, and there there is definite involvement with this new yes movement that uh, everyone keeps talking about, but I haven't quite seen hands across mm. the water uh, to do. As long as it's 100 percent genuine, speedily delivered that concerted campaign, then, you know, fair enough. But uh, we need to hear and see something about that concertedness. And, you know, in the margins, Alba are constantly saying, where is 
the constitutional convention idea, where is pulling everybody together? That's the thing that I I want to see now. Um, you know, Holmes has had a bit of an Easter break. <laughs> I'm sure mm-hmm. he, he and everybody else has felt he needed it. Uh, but it's not OK to kind of come out now with just more of the same. There's got to be something that um, in the many, many things in his inbox, there's got to be something that, that delivers on some of this talk about a reset. And he's got to be honest and have the courage to come clean with people about what his ideas and timescales are. I know he's talking about the five years, but that's just another of these kind of you know, generalized. What does does that mean in strategy terms? So. Yes, there's there's a heck of a lot to do, but the least of my interest, I've got to say, is what happens to Peter Murrell. Yeah, I mean, precisely. I mean, because I was I was incredibly impressed by Michelle Thompson this morning, because she she came clearly very well prepared. Uh, she was incredibly articulate, and then when Gary Robertson, I think it was, kept going back at the ifs, the ifs, the ifs, she says, "Look, can we just move away from this? We've got to talk about child poverty. We've got to talk about uh, the cost of living crisis. We've got to talk about climate change. We've got to talk about these important issues." That is the very reason that we, we we're going for independence. Uh, I read about the the George Kerman article in in the National yesterday again, which I thought was interesting. Um, where he focused on a different element of what Mike Russell said that uh, he, in the Herald article, which is he explicitly offered cooperation with Commonweal and was open to working with Alaba if there was this hands across the water from Alaba uh, and rather than sniping. I mean, and, and people who support Alaba may say, no, we're not sniping, we're just raising, raising genuine issues. But is, is this this cooperation that may take place? And I thought Humza Yusuf's article again in literally just in in today's today's national. Uh, and I, I love the way he began with it. It's a period of change and transition. And I thought, well, that's an an underestimate, an understatement of uh, uh, of significant proportions. There, asking people to keep the faith, and there was direct reference to not only SNP members but also the broader Yes movement. But again, it's moving, as you say, beyond the statement to actual action to see what's going to be happening here. And I'm entirely with you. I, I watched the uh, the model uh, saga unfold and the, I was detached from it because it's not the most important thing to me that's actually going on. Yeah, well, the, I mean, let's just look at sort of where we are now. Um, is it, it sounds as if there's lots of briefing that the next general election will actually not be next spring, but next sort of autumn uh, is what the well-placed uh, mm. commentators within the English press are saying. So there's kind of, you know, there's about, uh, well, there's just over a year before there is an event at which the SNP must have a strategy and a position. So this is the, the window to get yourself ready. You know, if you're if you're an athlete of some sort, this is what you're, that's your next target gig, basically, for, for kind of, you know, um, strengthening and training and so on. So we've got to get, Humza Yusuf's got to get this thing together. Um, and that does mean something that's a little bit, well, a lot more concerted than just, you know, daring, that, that Mike Russell daring to mention Commonweal. With, with all total respect to Mike, um, I know he's happily planning to be on his way out as soon as possible, you know. So this is kind of not his gig 
Now, he's never not going to be an important figure in that. Perhaps he'll stay on as president, although perhaps those all those positions will be up for re-election at the SNP conference in October. But the point is, that needs to come, all that stuff needs to come from Humza Yusuf or people who are in his cabinet. You know, these guys need to start also stepping up and stepping out because nobody knows who they are. Yeah. So um, we've got to get something that brings a lot of this together. And, you know, on the on the other side of, of people, you know, people in Commonweal have got very used to being completely ignored despite doing Herculean amounts of uh, research and delivering completely kind of put together policy. But but, you know, there's a different possibility here. If you're going to be in, in, in any way connected with government, they're not going to take on a whole. Here's our complete solution for the universe. Take it or leave it. So, uh, you know, people to work with the SNP in whatever way that happens um, will also have to adjust themselves somewhat. You know, it's actually much mm. easier to be shut out because that way you can develop your entire thinking separately because you ain't never going to get a hearing from these guys. And nobody has over all these years. Um, so, you know, it, it'll be it'll be more right like reality for everybody as in give take compromise negotiation explaining something you feel explained a million times again um all of that beckons if there is something that is more like a yeah proper coordinated yes movement and at the midst of all that you know there's a there's still a question within the yes side of things as to whether or not there is you know that vexed question whether there is one yes organization mm -hmm. Um, the Scottish Independence Convention, which changed its name to Voices for Scotland, which is now changing its name again to something that I, I'm appalled to think that I've forgotten the acronym <laughs> for. It's not MFI because you can see why that wouldn't work. <laughs> but it's like that with Scotland at the end. So I think it's Movement for Independence in Scotland or something. Um, have had a meeting and that's the one that's got you know representatives from all the, the yes groups. The problem for that, I mean, I was a convener of this back in the day. It is very difficult to get a life kind of organisation out of something where everybody has to go back and consult their members. And yet that is obviously the democratic way to do something. So there's a difficulty there um, with that becoming a sort of campaigning organisation. Um, and meanwhile, Believe in Scotland, which is pretty much run by Gordon McIntyre Kemp, is kind of saying, well, we've got one already. You know, I can't remember how many uh, signatory organisations there are, but from memory, it's something like 180 yes groups have affiliated. Um, and, you know, essentially it looks like it's, it's it covers Scotland, it does the stuff, and um, it has put those ideas about a well-being economy, which, mm -hmm. which uh, Believe in Scotland researched, uh, and just found about two months ago, maybe three months ago, uh, maybe longer, um, when when that was put to people, uh, the idea of an independent Scotland with a well-being economy, that secured 61% yes. Now, of course, that's one thing to say, another thing to do. You know, anybody, and they're perfectly entitled, would be questioning, well, what does that mean? How can you do it? And you need to generate the cash to be able to redistribute better. But that's the argument you want to have. That's where you want to be. Yes. And that that polling and that emphasis and thinking has all come from Believe in Scotland. So there's actually quite a lot of these groups in the wings ready with lots of ideas um, and 
And it would be, I mean, it would be beyond brilliant to think that that could then come together in some way to just mean that we haven't got this kind of bifurcated yes movement, where there's the SNP sort of sitting with close pegs on their nose as far as involvement. And I, you know, this is overstating it because there have been quite a number of leadership people who have come on all under one banner marches and done stuff. But generally speaking, there's been a big kind of divide between everybody else and the SNP leadership. Although I see that that Humza has decided he can't make it to the All Under One Banner March, uh, yeah. the Republican March the, on May the 6th, the coronation date. Uh, you know, which is, well, I mean, it would, in, it would in a fantasy world, probably it would be lovely to think he could basically stick two fingers up to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to Westminster Abbey and, and come on the All Under One Banner March. I guess, given the number of, you know, he's the first minister for the whole of Scotland. But, you know. Uh, I hope somebody with high profile will come and that's the moment for them to make their mark, you know, but that there needs to be somebody from the SNP cabinet at that march if it's not going to be Humza. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could well understand the uh, why Humza would not be att- attending that march and, and, and attending the coronation, because as you've rightly said, it is for the whole of Scotland. And, and there's still a significant proportion of people who support an independent Scotland who would actually uh, wouldn't mind a scaled down, uh, more modern uh, monarch in an independent Scotland. I am not one of them. But I'm, and the other aspect of it is that I'm quite willing to have two referendums, you know, let's get independence first and then we can talk about the role of the monarchy within that framework. I, I don't believe it. Well, you know. just just to be pedantic, um, <laughs> and, and having just thought my way through an awful lot of these things all day, all night for what feels like 400 years, but has only been three months. <laughs> um, you know, the thing is, just let's take that question of the monarchy. I mean, this this is the tip of an iceberg. It yeah. is the tip of an unwritten constitution in which the divine right of kings has basically descended from on high down onto the monarch. And then when the monarch became a constitutional monarch, uh, it descended onto the the British government in the form pretty much of the prime minister. And so all, lots of the problems we have, this question of sovereignty that the, the Supreme Court decides cannot be in any way uh, split, handed out, devolved, all the rest of it, that all originates from that uh, nexus of power that that used to reside in the monarch. Now, if we're going to start talking about what an independent Scotland looks like, we need to just talk about a whole constitution. And it's it's kind of typical of the piecemeal way that British politics works, that the arguments are concentrated simply in the form of do we want King Charles or not? And mm. very much on the personality of him as king. Um, I mean, my thought is that what we need to have is the same sort of uh, citizens' assembly type uh, structure which the Icelanders have used, the Irish have used to great effect on their equal marriage and abortion reform, uh, to, to sit and look at the whole question of a constitution. I know there are people that have sat and come up with their whole, you know, uh, ideas themselves. I'm sorry, that just isn't okay. <laughs> you know, we're not doing anything in the future the way that, you know, a couple of guys who are well briefed and lawyers have just produced a tablet of stone and everyone's gone, oh, it's a bit hard to get your head around eye, that'll do. Um, from here on in, we need involvement because it changes the nature of how those decisions are received. I mean, when 
when the Irish managed to get their abortion reforms uh, put together, and it was a lot more, well, you know, it was seen as a lot more radical uh, than anyone had expected. Nonetheless, it got something like 68% support in the subsequent referendum, which astonished everyone. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason was because the public, if they hadn't got the time to look through all the ins and outs, knew that people like them had sat going over and over and over and over it. And the other thing was, it was just quite possible they actually knew some of the people who'd done it. And the media had covered it. So they'd seen it. So all of this happens when you put a really big, committed, unequivocal piece of trust in people, our people, sorting out our constitution. And you can't buy that. It's not a slot in. You can't just stick it in like a memory card and, you know, off we go. You need that buy in for every part of the process that carries us towards independence. So, Charles, you know, monarchs, how you deal with it. To me, that's one of the things that happens in that Citizens Assembly that makes sense when you look at the whole constitution and how you set the whole thing up. I wouldn't be wanting an elected. Uh, I wouldn't be wanting a monarch. Um, 55 percent of Scots in a, an opinion poll in December don't imagine they want an elect, uh, a monarch in uh, an independent Scotland. Yep, I'd imagine we'd be having a head of a head, elected head of state. And in that respect, we would actually be joining the rest of Europe because yeah. the the amazing thing about all of this is that actually we are the we Britain is the only country that still actually does a coronation, you know, a full scale coronation. And whether this is a kind of, you know, smaller scaled down one or not is kind of irrelevant, although it will have a new gold carriage, two new mm. thrones and cost a million quid. So if that's scaled down, then you kind of hesitate to think what full on would have been. But the point is that, um, you know, most monarchies like the European monarchies, 21 of 27 EU member states are republics with elected heads of state. So there are only six monarchies in Europe. Uh, all of them, except except Britain, do not have coronation ceremonies. Um, the Danes have a much simpler event. Um, the Dutch and the Belgians have never had a coronation. And other ones just require the monarch to take an oath in the country's parliament. That's it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this leads on to the question about why it is so important that Britain still has, you know, the, the full nine yards. And there's an excellent piece written by journal, a journalist, Rory Scothorn, who was actually doing a, uh, an obituary <clears throat> really about Tom Nairn, who also wrote a lot about the role of the monarchy. But this quote <clears throat> from Rory Scothorn, I think, says, speaks volumes. And he's saying that the British royal family is not just regal eye candy, but this is the quote, indicates to its subjects that Britain is not like other states and thus need not be held to similar standards. By proving we do things differently here, the monarchy helps us avoid the realisation we actually do things worse. It is royalty above all that makes Britain's conservative constitution popular, you'd have to say, in England. So there's an awful lot knitted together in what is happening with the monarchy and I would love us to be able to approach that entire thought in a rational way, which is is part of the argument for completely revisiting the nature of the British state in an independent country.
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's one of these ones where, I mean, if people could see me, I'm nodding furiously. I mean, I, I think the, the monarchy is the foundation on which the whole class-ridden system is based in the, the current United Kingdom. And I would happily vote to, to get rid of it and have a, be, be like any normal grown-up country and be a republic with an elected head of state. You know, if we if one it's one is obviously such is required. But what it what it brings down to, and again, and I find your your article interesting in the way that you you led in the article in the Herald, the way you led in directly, because we have the Labour Party currently wrapping itself in the union flag, and will be delighted to take part in the the, the shenanigans that is going on with the coronation of of King Charles the Third, because we have the Labour Party making a bid quite quite openly to be the party of what they believe to be patriotism. And mm-hmm. the, the corner that they've placed themselves in very definitely, and uh, this has been this has been shown uh, by Starmer's recent article in the Daily Mail and by the attack ads uh, that uh, Starmer is running, where there's this very definite appeal being made to the specific segment of the English electorate that, if I'm, I'm stating things diplomatically, are sceptical skeptical about immigration. They are uh, at, they were pro-Brexit. They are socially conservative. And it does make sense then when we actually look at the attack ads with the way that the Labour Party decided to run the attack ads, focusing on Rishi Sunak, which we can talk about in a minute, about this personalisation would at work, but focusing on Sunak and focusing on law and order. A direct appeal, and we can see that terrain of the general election when it comes being laid out in front of us, and it is nasty, and it is going to be culture wars. Totally. And and I see that um, that uh, politicals have had a look at the support or otherwise for these attack ads. The one, the main one, which basically claims Rishi Sunak doesn't think child sex abusers should go to mm. prison, um, which is kind of, I, th- I think that's just got everybody going, oh, don't play, don't, don't trivialise, don't game yeah. this, don't go that route, you know, and this isn't, I mean, so what are you, you know, it's, it's an easy thing, absolutely, to, to, to say that that ev- everyone who offends in any walk of life should be in prison. And the Tories have started that with some of the figures about um, the number of community sentences that haven't been fully yes. served in, in Scotland. And there's definitely a big problem uh, with the, the kind of tailback from COVID when there was no uh, you know, there's been a huge, huge backlog of all sorts of criminal justice cases and a pre-existing one of the same old problem. You know, every time you don't just throw the problem into prison, you actually have to employ more people to deal with all the alternatives. Uh, so, you know, that at a time of cut it, cut budgets and so on has been a bit of a nightmare. Granted all of that. But when you come down to just looking that coldly in the eye that advert i mean you know i think my, every everyone i know's reaction will probably be the same which is just yuck yeah. and and actually what politicos had found is that no one has tweeted those that ad not even keir starmer mm-hmm. uh, so you know it's been done by the apparatchiks and party hq and so on and none of none of the cabinet apparently have even retweeted it yeah. So it's 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 kind of it, it's a qu- questionable <clears throat> what it does in terms of the politics of trying to bring 
any kind of wavering Tories across to, to Labour, but certain that it's causing a lot of yuck and a sort of distancing and a hesitation amongst Labour supporters. Although you'd have to say, given that it's, you know, Hobson's choice, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. It's It only raises the possibility that some people will just feel a bit jaded and li- unlikely to turn out. But that's that's probably not a big problem at this in this election, because after so long with Tory government, there will be a massive head of steam developing to just get on with it. The thing that was interesting, I thought, was um, amongst the various people who are not very keen on this was Monica Lennon, uh, mm-hmm. the Labour MSP. Yeah, she was the one who pioneered the period poverty bill, which you know is a pioneering piece of legislation that's now being copied across the world uh, that passed through the Scottish Parliament last year. But she um, joined this chorus of criticism and and said that uh, she she was not going to be wheesting for a Labour government, <laughs> which is an interesting one, because up till now, I thought you only wheesed for Indy. But, you know, clearly she's suggesting there is this unofficial policy. She's confirming, obviously, that it exists, that there's pressure on everyone to just not argue about any of the stuff that's being generated by Labour HQ in London in case it throws the Keir Starmer victory off course. And there's your problem in a one or folks. You know, we're back to the, the branch economy uh, of, of, of Scottish Labour. Um, they don't have the freedom to be able to say what they think about stuff. And actually, fair play to you know people like Monica Lennon, who've just decided they're bigger fish to fry. And actually, when we're coming to it, um, the, the decision that Humza uh, Yusuf will have to take quite soon about whether or not to challenge the Section 35 yes. order that's trying to knock down the Gender Recognition Reform Act and whether or not the legals are sufficient that he's got grounds to be able to um, argue that one. Quite setting aside the kind of arguments that m- many people have about that piece of legislation, there is nonetheless the fact that it was passed by two thirds of parliamentarians in Holyrood And that will actually put Labour in an interesting position should he decide to um, to challenge the the application of a Section 35 order. What does Scottish Labour do? Because they absolutely, I think, to a man and a woman were in there voting for gender recognition reform. So what do you do then? When Westminster swings in and says, we don't like the cut of your jib or that kind of bit of legislation. So actually, we're just going to knock it down. Do they go, I knock yourselves out? I mean, we all spent however many years <laughs> sifting through all the, the evidence, went through two consultations, hours of debate, and we think it's all OK. But I, you come in just because you're <laughs> from London and everything, you knock it down and that'll be big Jim dandy. How does that look? So, you know, it's like not everything. It's a bit like um this whole it's a bit like, I don't know why I'm seeing this image of two sumo wrestlers, I'm going to regret even going through this, who've basically sized one up and up and are standing looking at each other and suddenly one of them moves to a different part of the ring and everything has to reconfigure around them. This will be true from here on in. Everybody's put back on their heels somewhat because this decision to challenge, if he goes ahead with it, challenges everyone. I mean, we know that the the you know the, the the big challenge that Twitter will see will still be the question of whether or not there's safe spaces for women, 
Mm-hmm. And of course, thrown into that mix is the British government's intention to consider amending the Equality Act such that you put in uh, the, the uh, biological identifiers, which allows you to have the so-called safe spaces. So th- the plot could thicken yet. However, you've got a straightforward issue here. Is it OK for the British government to knock down something that you, Scottish Labour, voted for in the Scottish Parliament or not? Yeah. And switching back to actually Michelle Thompson's interview this morning, I thought it was strikingly significant that when she was questioned about this directly, she said that it was a challenge to the Scottish Parliament. So I I think it's more than surface the unity that's appearing over this because she was obviously articulating what was the line that Kate Falls would be taking. So if anyone was looking for a split there, and she did mention the fact that Hamza Yusuf was seeking legal advice upon this, and that it was a challenge to the Scottish Parliament. So that, that that's a, a, a signifier of unity to me there. And it, you're absolutely right. It's going to throw the ball entirely back in Anasarwa's court. Reflecting on the uh, uh, on the, the whole issue of the, the attack ads, I don't know if you heard John McTernan this morning. Yes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, everybody's talking about it. This is absolutely sheer genius. And wasn't McTernan involved uh, with the Australian Labour Party at one point running campaigns there? It does, something jogs in the back of my mind that he was, because this has been a page taken directly out of the campaign by Anthony Albanese in 2022, where you had an incredibly unpopular Scott Morrison, the, the, the Australian Conservative Party leader, and it was all about, it was these were the attack ads that were run and it was a focus entirely on the individual and it does show that that I think that Labour are slightly worried well more than slightly worried about the fact that Rishi Sunak is significantly more popular in his own party you know so the Tories definitely more unpopular than Rishi Sunak is and when you actually look at the uh, popularity statistics I mean it's a pretty low bar um Sunak is more popular slightly more popular in latest polls than Keir Starmer. So I'm just wondering, I mean, you know, it's it's a, it's a risk to take. Um, it has got everybody talking about it, as McTernan said, but I, I and I think Labour are just, be, depending on the fact, as you rightly said, that uh, the appeal will be made to a specific segment of the, of the electorate to try and get them back on board the Labour Party, while the rest of the English electorate, who are progressive and on the left, will, will hud their noses and vote Labour just to get the Tories out. Mm. Yeah, uh, apparently they're, uh, the, the Labour is putting another one out today. Um, which is now an economy-related ad, um, accusing Sunak of thinking it's right to raise taxes for working people while his family benefits from a tax loophole, which is a reference to his wife having Mm non-DOM tax status, which she's stopped having. Um, So it looks like there's a whole long series of these ads coming, actually. Um, You know, so that that holding the nose is going to have to go on for quite a while, although people might feel less nose-holdingy about... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about those questions of of sort of tax loopholes, um, you know, and perhaps everybody south of the border will get used to this style of of attacking. The the Labour are apparently saying that they know full well that the Tories will come out with that kind of stuff at 100 miles an hour once it gets closer to the the election. Um, but if the action is going to be in the autumn of next year, stand by everybody for you know 14 months of this kind oh, of. Yeah you know, hardline stuff. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and uh, if and let's Amy's, not let's mm-hmm. not leave uh, dear Douglas Ross out of it because oh, no. you know, in the, exactly. <laughs> in the meantime, yes. he's well, got himself into uh, kind get, of hot water with this suggestion yeah. that he's saying very loudly that there should be a kind of you know. Uh, a, almost a pact so that that uh, there should be tactical voting between Labour and Tories so that you vote Tory in seats where they could win. You know, the same old stuff, basically. Yes. But he's kind of coming out with that. And and actually, I don't know if you saw or uh, heard uh, Craig Hoy, my mm. a friend from debate night who momentarily <laughs> fell asleep when I was speaking. That's right. Uh, anyway. I'd met him. Sorry, this is probably a, a, a dangerous departure, d- d- meander too far. But I met him. Uh, he, he's actually incredibly cheery. You know, this was when you kind of pull somebody's leg that hard once, they tend to kind of avoid you a wee bit when you meet them. But um, Craig bounced up to say hello <laughs> at the media circus that developed um, as the leadership vote was being announced outside Holyrood. But nonetheless, he also bounced up on uh, the Sunday show on BBC Scotland and uh, completely contradicted the notion Mm -hmm. that Douglas Ross had even said that, you know, which was kind of, you know, we heard him. (laughs) It's just like we heard him. But clearly the the party is pretty furious about that because it does look incredibly weak. Um, So, you know, it's not just the SNP that are sitting pulling lumps out of themselves. It's that the SNP have not traditionally pulled lumps out of themselves at yes. all. And I'm not undermining the seriousness of this, though. These are serious charges. Um, and whether or not the, the polis look like they have been exercising the amount of overkill that even commentators like the Daily Mail's Richard Littlejohn mm. suggests, you know, where he he's saying 20 polis, 400 tents. You know, and and actually examining a barbecue, I mean, I don't know, what does anybody think you would put in your barbecue of a sort of incriminating nature? That this, you know, and then there had to be the official um, fact, full fact people had to be put on to whether or not the garden had been dug up, which it hadn't. You know, there's probably nobody buried there either. (laughs) There has clearly been a level of just, uh, you know, that the media have have just run with this. And it has been, of course, every political opponent that's been waiting for a sign of weakness has absolutely raced in for the kill. And yet, I mean, I think in 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 trying to point that out, you still have to just be mindful of the fact that we have no idea what will happen uh, yes. in terms of the police investigation. And if there's one thing that characterises Scots, really, it is this tediously democratic nature of you know, approach of doing things. So there's no point going any further than this. Um, we we just wait to see here now whether there will actually be charges and what they will be. Yeah, and the impact is very interesting because Hamza Yusuf said that since 2007, the imminent demise of the SNP as an electoral force has been predicted by opponents. And uh, George Caravan, again, writing, I totally agree with him. The fact is that uh, any electoral defeat for the SNP does strike at the movement, even though these are two separate elements. Because uh, in the latest Servation report, support for the SNP at Westminster is still at 40%, Labour 32%, the Tories at 17%. And it's similar figures when you look at Holyrood constituency and Holyrood list. And when the, the latest one, we exclude the don't knows, no is at 54% to independence. Yes is at 46%. So it, 
So we await to see what happens in the the, the polls subsequent to the to the latest because uh, these these took place the latest one took place I think the last survey was done the, there was a day of it just after the, the Peter Murrell's arrest but I mean if if even in these worst of times that is still the support for independence that exists and that's still the support for the SNP as the vehicle political vehicle that people are going to to work with to in order to achieve independence, that is still pretty damn good figures considering where the movement was and the SNP were prior to 2014. It is, it is. I mean, it's terrible that as soon as you say something positive, which I might well have said myself, Pat, and probably did earlier, one feels the need to kind of just say, caveat, ah, but. That, you know. Uh, <laughs> but it just is that, that it will, you still, I mean, in the sense that people who have, looked at the British state, the way it works and the possibilities for the future, very few people will go, oh, well, go on then. Let's just go and try and make a little, you know, a little kind of sandcastle in the corner and stick a wee flag on it and say that's basically a house, which is what it feels like mm. to say that just sticking with the union and the way we've been cuffed around. Yeah, that's fine. Just cuff us around some more. Hey, why don't you? We need to get our side sorted. And the SNP has got really a unique moment now to, to just reprise yeah. that top-down sort of loftiness um, at, at the one hand. And absolutely, if there's been any financial shenanigans to sort that out. But it's the loftiness that allows mm. much of it to happen because within the SNP, some people made a concerted attempt to try and tackle it. And yes. we're seeing more evidence now of how many attempts there were to do that and how many were closed down. So, like, that has to change now. Um, it's always the case that you know no matter how much people think the appearance of unity justifies all forms of argument being shut down it comes back and kicks you in the head sooner yep. or later and here we are now so this this really does mean that whilst Toombs has got a million freaking things to do um he really does need to come out with something and actually i also want to hear him talk from the heart about mm -hmm. this because just as you talked about his piece for the national, and it's great to see a first minister writing for the national because that never happened either. Um, you know, the national role always the last to get something mm -hmm. because it looked more impactful in trying to persuade the opposition to try and place something in the Daily Mail. Now, I'm not saying that won't happen at some time in the future, but my God, these guys have hung on in there. Many of these individual journalists possibly damaging their own careers by association with a cause that seems to not be regarded as objective in, in other people's eyes. And it's good to see that Holmes is writing for the National. But I mean, that opening thing about I can't even remember what it was. What was it again? You know, it's this time of transition or whatever. Yes, I know yeah. your first minister, you probably have to talk some shite. You know what I mean? It's fair enough. But really, come on, you know, you can vary it. You, you may have to kind of just be making sure you don't offer any hostages to fortune in careful language and so on. But there's times where you do have to show some of the colour, some of the business, mm -hmm. some of the, you know, vigour, basically, because in a sense, that's what people are looking for from you now, Humza, is a feeling of vigour. Um, because that's what you certainly need to, to get through an awful lot of the problems in front of you. And actually, just just to throw in a, a wee mm -hmm. side point, because I've got so many pals that are sitting on the islands at the moment, tearing the blimmin' hair out at six ferries now having faults. The Alapo yeah. ferry across to Lewis having been off this morning. The Corrin ferry operated by Highland Council. Um, 
being kaput for months potentially, which is a six minute crossing turned into a one hour, 20 minute drive. I mean, the environment can't handle that. The single track roads can't handle it. It's appalling that Ardnamurchan, which is essentially an island uh, peninsula, has been stuck in this situation. And as Angus McNeil rightly says, in any other country, that small crossing, which is shorter than the Scalpy Bridge across to a tiny island with far smaller population than Harris, um, that should have been a bridge a long time ago. A, a lot of folk on Ardnamurchan argued against a bridge because they wanted to keep the jobs that were entailed yeah. in actually having the ferries, plural. But then one ferry fell away, which left one, just one ferry ploughing backwards and forwards, uh, perhaps contributing to its, you know, knackeredness. I was going to say premature knackeredness, but it's not premature. It had a 20 year lifespan and that 20 years expanded 10, expi expired 10 years ago. So on all these fronts, we're, we are continuing with knackered hardware. And um, I, I appreciate, you know, we're sitting here at a time, there's difficulties, but people will look at, you know, people from, from the Highlands will look at stuff, you know, like the expenditure that was rightly done on the, on the, the, the new fourth crossing, the Queensferry crossing, like they will keep seeing. It's the same, it's yeah. the same perspective as we see with London where you get, you know, all the sort of investments in in train infrastructure, new motorways, tunnels, the, the full nine yards HS2 that was never going to reach us. You just think, yeah, that's the way they hang. Well, that's how the central belt looks to Highlanders and indeed, you know, folk in the borders and elsewhere. And given that Kate Forbes had a lot of support in the Highlands, it would be a blooming good idea for the new transport secretary to at least get off I'm not suggesting mm -hmm. that he actually is sitting around doing nothing, but get up to Corrin, you know, and engage. I mean, I see that Kevin Stewart is just washing his hands of it and saying this is a Highland Council responsibility. And that's what I mean about this. Mm. That's not what anyone that's not good enough anymore because you can't. OK, where's Highland Council going to find the money? Will they just, I don't know, shut a hospital or something to try and find the money to buy a new ferry, which doesn't which isn't going to rapidly be a solution. I mean, everybody is sitting with these these hardware problems. The same is true past the rest to be thankful, where there's constant landslips and people stuck on the old military road and or a detour of practically two hours. I mean, we've got to sort some of these problems out. And if 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 the if the Scottish government could find the way to to sort one of them, um, it would mean a lot to people in the Highlands in terms of restoring faith. Yeah, I mean, what, what you're actually talking about, and it goes, it's a central question in terms of the Scottish government and the SNP itself, it's opening itself up to others and being collegiate in so many ways, not just internally, but externally as the Scottish government. Well, there's that, but it's, it's, it's more a thing of just, we, you know, one of the characteristics of Scotland for, for a very long time was massive underinvestment. I'm sure you and I are old enough to remember going down south and being absolutely astonished to see four line motorways in place yes. you know, because <laughs> yes. there wasn't one in Scotland. Now, those were in the days where the, the width of a motorway was the totem of, you know, capital mm. investment. I'm not suggesting that it is these days at all. And indeed, you know, still speechless with admiration, actually. For, for the Welsh deciding not to plough, you know, four billion mm. quid into their motorways. 
and taking a whole strategic other route. And see, that's my point, because they spent some time discussing, as they had to within a coalition, that framework of thinking. And they took they seem to have taken people with them. I see that actually Mark Drakeford actually voted for an amendment in the Senate criticising his own initiative for not <laughs> having consulted people enough on the ground, but they're still going on with it. So, you know, there's one off things that certainly would be a good totem to say, look, we get it and we can see that this yeah. is just not on. But just hunkering down and and trying to ignore the, the, the sort of infrastructural deficit that has developed over long years is not good enough. I mean, you know, again, people who've travelled will see the Faroese with all their tunnels uh, about to open the latest one later this year, which will almost connect the whole 18 islands across the chain by tunnel. The, the Norwegians were, if uh, people wanted to invest in tunnels and bridges, the councils were given permission um, or probably already had the power, let's say, uh, to, to uh, put out different ways of raising money and it was matched by central government. Mm. So they actually, around Alison, they uh, they opened up um, a kind of almost fund for local contributions from businesses and such like, matched it with government funding and created tunnels to the little islands that sit offshore. It's not all right to just sit and think that this is, uh, you yeah. know, the opponents saying SNP bad when we've got a whole western coast of, of uh, Scotland that is questionably accessible yeah well gosh uh and it's a i i don't think we can let the, the this episode uh pass leslie without mentioning the 25th anniversary of the the good friday agreement and i know that we, we've spoken about it before uh uh with malachi who was on the the, the, the program and uh there had been criticisms and i think justified criticisms from people like Eamon McCann, who said it was flawed because it it actually embedded the the nationalist unionist divide within northern ireland but I, again i think it would be it would be letting the achievement down to actually denigrate it in that way today when you think of undoubtedly the lives that people have been able to live since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement uh, 25 years ago and the lives that the agreement has actually saved and the challenges that now face because of Brexit and the attempts that are being made on all sides, you know, Europe, uh, the Republic of Ireland and the, the British government to try and resolve the issues. But it was a lasting, though flawed, achievement, an achievement that saved lives. Totally. And actually, I mean, Joe Biden's swinging in uh, now, is it, or is he already mm -hmm. there? Uh, I mean, he's speaking at Ulster University actually today at one o'clock. Then he's off to Dublin. He's addressing both houses of the Irish Parliament tomorrow. Um, he's then going to Ballina in County Mayo, which is his home turf, and addressing a crowd on Friday night, which would be a stoter. Would you not mm -hmm. want to be there, actually? Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> and then he's back back in the US on Saturday morning. And, I mean, this could actually have quite, quite a sort of impact. I mean, the American papers are apparently calling <clears throat> Biden the most Irish pres president since JFK, which is, you know, it's fair enough, especially at the end of this week, he will have had a non-stop input. And uh, apparently what he wants to talk about is restoring power sharing in Northern Ireland. So he's also going to hold a meeting with 
leaders of all five Northern Ireland's mm-hmm. political parties to try and break the deadlock, which is essentially the same process trying to happen again. Now, you know, it took <clears throat> an awful lot of hands on the tiller and time and patience and certain sorts of personalities and the leaders of the parties to get the, 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 the Good Friday Agreement over the line. But, you know, that's just a small attempt to try and do something of the same thing. And as we know from our trip to Belfast, by gum is there ahead uh, of steam mm-hmm. developing amongst everyone but Democratic Unionists to try to get the, you know, storm on setting again. And I see, again, there's an interesting piece um, where uh, one of the there's 10 permanent secretaries running Northern Ireland. And one of them anonymously had said to a journalist, I shouldn't be forced to play the role of a minister. It's an affront to democracy. It's politically indefensible. Locally elected ministers should be taking these deeply consequential decisions if the power sharing element of the Good Friday Agreement is to mean anything anymore. This this current situation is truly shameful. And it is. So, you know, it'll be it will be interesting to see where, you know, where we are by the end of the week. I'm not suggesting that uh, the contribution from um, a Joe Biden who hails from south of the border is going to make a massive Mm -hmm. difference to the minds of Democratic unionists who always feel rightly under pressure um, from the entitlement that that they have felt as a community for decades coming under pressure by the force of democracy they agreed to and the force of of uh, change in the population mm-hmm. so uh you know we can you can only hope and watch what will happen but i think it'll be some interesting com- con- contributions from joe biden and i hope it gets proper proper coverage on on our tv yeah, and, and just as an addition, uh, it's uh, we will not be with you next week uh, because uh, Leslie, you're off to Amsterdam, I think it is, and uh, and I'm I'm on the flit, which is a believe it or not is a Dutch word derived about or a similar. Uh, we'll be flitting who's uh, or stage one of flitting next week, but what we will be doing is we'll be putting out the uh, the live. Uh, version of the Leslie Rowdiff podcast that we did in Belfast. So uh, we got some very interesting insights from folk there, and it was a it was an interesting and very enjoyable experience. It was. So I hope people enjoy it. I'm trying to think how many things have happened since we recorded. An awful lot. An awful lot. But uh, yeah, you'll get the gist, and and certainly the gist of how things look from a Northern Ireland perspective. Yes. And on that note. We'll see you in 12 weeks, folks.